Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. I know I had promised Charlotte the other day we would get into something we're not going to get into. So, uh oh, I know. I'm well. I'm. Uh, this is my mea culpa uh, in front of the whole group. Uh, but as I started putting it together, Lord willing, two weeks. Uh, only because it's not. We're not meeting next week. Um, but I, I didn't want to just rush ahead with everything. So, so we're looking at verse 9 uh, tonight. And uh, again, Hebrews, uh, just a very brief uh, reminder of the book. It's written to Hebrews. And there are two groups of people being addressed. Uh, one are believers, those who truly possess the Lord, truly are saved. But there's a whole uh, group of people uh, that are professing believers. So they have given lip service to Jesus being the Messiah, but they're not truly saved. Uh, And so there are five warning passages in Hebrews that addresses uh, this group of people, uh, challenging them to come to uh, true faith in the Messiah. Because the book, what the book does, it just contrasts uh, the, the good things under the law but how much better Jesus is. And it contrasts uh, Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is God. Jesus is better than Moses. Um, Jesus is better than the high priest, the priesthood, the new covenant, better than the old covenant, and, and, and many other different things. Uh, and so don't go back to the old system. Don't go back to Mosaism or Judaism. It's really a, uh, a mixture at this time in history. Uh, because the temple's still standing, they're offering sacrifices, they had a high priest, they had a priesthood. So it's a, it's a mixture of Judaism and what I call Mosaism, the Mosaic law, uh, following the teachings of Moses. Today, in the Jewish world, you only have Judaism. Because you don't have a temple, you don't have those type of practices anymore. So you have Judaism. Uh, and next week, uh, we'll get in two weeks, we'll get into what I promised... Um, Charlotte about, Lord willing, uh, as we look into uh, an error today that uh, I think the passage we'll look at next week addresses. Now, it, in a sense, introduces it tonight, so I may introduce it very briefly tonight, uh, but it gets into the heart of it uh, in the following verses. I think it's 10 through 13. So, in chapter 13... And the key, really, to this uh, whole thing is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith. And you got that what's often referred to as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it lists all these people who please God by, by faith. 
Well, as we come to chapter 13, there's a lot of just very, um, uh, one verse, if you will, challenges to people. Uh, and this is no different uh, in verse 9. Uh, it gives two challenges within the verse to the readers, one being positive, the other being negative or the first being negative, the second being positive in the order that it's laid out. And the first challenge is don't be influenced by false teaching, false doctrine. The second challenge is the positive, be established in grace. Be established in grace. Now, what the writer has in particular in mind uh, in, in, in false doctrine here uh, is the uh, teaching of rabbinical Judaism, uh, the erroneous teaching of rabbinical teaching, and, and all of the uh, extra stuff that the rabbis uh, added to the Word of God. The admonition, though, even though it's directed to, to the meats, and we'll see, I think we'll see it very clearly as we ultimately read verse 9 shortly, uh, but the admonition is certainly true uh, down through history at any time for any kind of false teaching. But in the context, it's addressing uh, kind of like what, what the Galatian problems was, the book of Galatians, which was the Judaizers, and that you have to go back under uh, the law to be saved, that type of thing. So that is in the context what it's addressing, but it's applicable uh, to any false teaching at, teaching at any time and down through history. Well, it reads this way. Be not carried about with diverse, different, and strange doctrines. There's the negative. Don't be waylaid. Don't be misled by strange teaching, false teaching, erroneous teaching. Doctrine is just teaching. Different. I mean, it doesn't. It's not necessarily one false teaching. Uh, there's all kinds of false teaching. Divers meaning different, uh, and, and false doctrines or teachings. And then it goes on. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. That's the positive. It's good if your heart is established with grace. And then it addresses, in the context, uh, the problem that was being dealt with, uh, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. That is the, uh, the Judaism, or the Mosaism, and the sacrificial system, and all the rules, all the regulations that go around that in the rabbinical world, and takes them away from the truth. So don't be led astray by false teaching. Do be established in your heart with grace. So we're going to consider that tonight. Number one, don't be carried away with different and strange doctrines. Now, whenever you hear uh, anything taught, and we live in a world today where you get a lot of stuff taught that is not good, uh, the first thing you should ask yourself, uh, does the Bible teach it? Now, that sounds simple, but false teachers use the Bible. Um, they misuse the Bible. 
Remember in, uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Jesus was tempted by Satan? What did, what did Satan use to try to trip up Jesus? Scripture. Did he quote it properly? No, he misquoted it. He misused it, misapplied it, but he used the Bible. He used Scripture. Well, false teachers down through the ages have done the same type of thing because false teachers ultimately are uh, empowered by uh, Satan and uh, misuse of Scripture. You can go right back to the garden. Remember when uh, Adam and Eve, they were confronted by Satan? Um, Satan did the same thing. He misused Scripture. Has not God said? Well, if God said it, it's the Word of God, uh, that type of thing. So does the Bible teach you? Now, that, that uh, implies knowing the Bible, understanding the Bible, being a good student of the Bible, uh, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, I think it's 2.2 2 or 2.5. Uh, so uh, it, it's not because again a lot of people use the Bible uh, another way that you you can uh, question it has historical biblical Christianity held this belief I mean if some, something is brand new just come on the scene and it's never been introduced or taught through uh, uh, the last two millennia and biblical not Christianity or Christendom but biblical Christianity hasn't taught it uh, it's something you should look at a little bit deeper, a little bit closer. Uh, now, that doesn't make it necessarily wrong if biblical Christianity hasn't taught it throughout history, uh, but there's a good possibility it might be. But if the Bible doesn't teach it, it is wrong. So the command that we have initially uh, is to not be led away from the truth by false doctrine it's in the present imperative. Now, what that means is this is a problem that was happening at this time in the, uh, in, in the world of the first century. This was an ongoing problem. Uh, present imperative, imperative, we talked about this last week, the week before, I don't remember, was uh, you have either imperative or indicative mode. Uh, indicative is what? Stating a fact. And we looked at this in light of, if you remember, if you were here, in uh, the question of the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and I'm going to mention, uh, I, I think I mentioned uh, well, Corinth as, in a little bit. We'll look at that. Every chapter in, Corinth, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is a rebuke. Every chapter, without exception. And when you come down to chapter 12, and the chapter that is looked at is the chapter in gifts. And by the way, it's gifts, if you, if you would look in your, and we're not going to turn there, we've done this in the past. But if you look at the word gifts in chapter 12, it's italicized. And what that means is that it was a word that was added by the translators that they thought would clarify the meaning of the verse. Um, literally what it is saying is now concerning spirituality. Spirituality is manifested in our life by the use of the gifts that God has given us. So gifts are not really there, although it talks about gifts later on in the chapter. It's talking, uh, it's talking about 
being spiritual. And it talks about all the problems that they're having. They're, they're, they're arguing, they want the showy gifts, that type of thing. When you come down to, I think it's the last verse um, uh, in chapter 12. It, it, in, the, in the English it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now the whole chapter up to that point had said, you're wrong for coveting gifts. God gives to everyone as he, God, wills, determines. And he's, he's rebuking them, Paul is, God essentially. Not that Paul's God, but he's writing the word of God. He's rebuking them for fighting over the showy gifts and telling them not what they consider the better gifts. Don't do it. That's wrong. God gives every man his gift as God desires, God wills, not as you pray, not as you want. And then at the very last verse, he says then, covet ye earnestly the best gifts. Now, that would, if that is an imperative, that would contradict the entire flow of the chapter. And, and, and it's oftentimes in, translated in the imperative. imperative. Covet earnestly the best gift. Sounds like a command. That's what an imperative is, a command. It's actually uh, in uh, a fact, and he's rebuking it. But you are coveting the best gifts. That's wrong. And what's the next phrase, if you remember? But I'm going to show on to you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, what's the more excellent way? Love. There's, a, there's, to me, that's one of the best examples uh, of the indicative versus imperative. Indicative stating a fact, imperative giving a command. Well, here it's the imperative. And he's saying, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. This is a command. It's a must. Don't let false teachers influencing your walk with the Lord and carry you astray with the erroneous teachings that are out there. And it's in the present tense, so it's happening then. Do you think it's happening today? <laughs> so, yes. So it's just as, just as um, uh, practical, just as, uh, just as much for us today as it was back then. So it's, it's, it's in the present imperative, imperative meaning there's a problem that some are facing it today. Now, and, and the issue that they're facing is going back to Judaism. Think of Galatians. We're going to look at Colossians, but again, think of Galatians. When you had the Judaizers that were trying to get people to go back to the law, to Judaism. That's the problem that in Hebrews is being, they're faced with. The temple is still standing. The priesthood is still there. You still have a high priest. They had this religion, God-given, for, oh, 1,500 years or so, 1,600 years or so. How difficult might that be to give that up? How much of a difficulty do people in the world today have giving up their religion when it's not given by God? A lot. This was a, I don't know if I want to use religion, but um, 
th this was a practice, the Mosaic Law, and all of the attending requirements with it, sacrifices, priesthood, dress codes, and so on, eating of meats, what kind of meats, you know, you can't have pork, sorry, Buzz, um, you can't, you know, and all of that type of stuff. Um, this was given by God. And so some of them were having a very difficult time leaving it. Now, next week, it gets very, very pointed on why they need to leave it, or two weeks, not next week, as you look at it. But look at Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 23. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. <clears throat> you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Unsaved. The uncircumcision of your flesh. Gentiles. Have he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. They've been forgiven. They have been saved. They have been redeemed. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, what was the uh, ordinance, the handwriting... The handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What is the handwriting of ordinances? Mosaic law. Exactly. And it was, how was it blotted out? In what, who, how was it done away? It says, how was it done away with? Nailed to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the law. And, and Galatians deals with this in chapter 2 and 3. And we're not going to turn there again. We'll never get through this lesson tonight if we go down too many rabbit trails. There are two promises contained within the law. One is positive and one is negative, and they're referred to as blessing and curse. You find that in the law. You find that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, speaking to the nation, and you've got 14 verses that if you will obey my commandments, God says, then I'll bless thee. And he, and he lists a number of things that'll do. Starting in verse 15, it says, but if you don't obey my commandments, I will curse you. And you've got about three or four chapters of cursings. Um, blessing and cursing. Well, when Jesus came, it says in Matthew, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And when you think of uh, Galatians chapter 2, I, I, I think it's around verse 23 or so. It says, it, it says, if there was a law that could have given life, meaning eternal life, verily, righteousness, or truly, righteousness would have come by the law the Mosaic Law. In other words, if there's a work system that can get you to heaven, God has already given it. It's the Mosaic Law. If you can keep the Mosaic Law perfectly, from the day you're born to the day you die, you have every right to go to heaven.
But that Galatians 2 passage goes on and says, but the scripture concludes all under sin. In other words, nobody keeps the law. So if it, the blessing of the law for an individual is if we can keep the law perfectly from the moment we're born to the time we die, we have every right to go directly to heaven. But the flip side of that is the cursing. If you don't keep the law of God perfectly, you're cursed. You're separated from God. So how many people have kept the law perfectly? Thank you. One. <laughs> so. Good for you. We'll give you a good check mark next year. No. So. so, there you fell into the trap. Uh, no, who kept the law perfectly? Jesus. But everybody else is a sinner. We break the law. And so we are under the curse, separated from God. Galatians chapter 2 says that Jesus became a curse for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He turned around, hung on Calvary's cross, and took the wrath of God upon himself, the curse of God, in our place, that we can be forgiven. So Jesus fulfilled both parts of the law. He fulfilled the blessing portion. As a man, he lived a perfect life without sin. As a man, he had every right to go directly to heaven. He didn't need a sacrifice because he was perfect. He also turned around and took the curse of the law upon him. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I am come to fulfill. Now we understand the fulfillment of the prophets. Micah says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yeah. Isaiah says Messiah would be born of a virgin. He was born, you know, we go down the list of all the prophecies. But it also is what Jesus said, I'm not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. That, that's how he fulfilled the law. He lived it perfectly and turned around and paid our penalty uh, in our stead and fulfilled both the curse, the blessing, and the cursing of the law in our place. Now, if we want to stand before God based on the law, and there's only one law, the Mosaic law, we don't have any plea. You know, our, it falls on, if you will, deaf ears uh, because we're sinners. So the only way we can satisfy the law is in Jesus. Uh, we're, the, we're made the righteousness of God in him. So when he satisfied the law on the cross, he nailed the law to the cross. The law was done away with. So he blotted out, verse 14, the handwriting of ordinance. It was against us. So in all I just said, why is the law against us? Because the law could give life, but is there any one of us, not Jesus, any one of us that can acquire eternal life through the law? No, so it's against us. So he blotted out the ordinance. It was against us. It was contrary to, to, to us. He took it out of the way, removed it, and nailed it to this cross. And, and I think we looked at this. Sometimes I get my Bible studies mixed up. Um, 
that could have been in Sunday school, the ABF. But uh, all the laws done away with. We've talked about that. Remember? Not, ju not just the ceremonial, not just the civil, but the moral. The law is not, law is a singular unit. It's, it's the law of Moses, not the laws of Moses. The Ten Commandments have been done away with. The ceremonial, the civil, all aspects of the law have been done away with. The law was nailed to the cross. Today we're we're, we, we, we follow the law of Christ. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated under the law of Christ. Which one is not repeated? Sabbath, yes. He nailed it to the cross. Verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, meaning the demonic realm. Uh, then he says this in, in Colossians. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day. In the context here, what is the admonition? Because I've had people tell me, I have no right to say that I can't keep the Sabbath, or I can't practice this holy day, or I can't... Um... No, 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 no. <laughs> Eat pork. Meat. Is that what this verse is saying? No, it's, it's, in, it's the exact opposite. It is, it's saying don't let anybody come along and say that you have to do these type of things. You have to keep the Sabbath. You have to keep this day. Uh, you, you can't eat um, unkosher food, that type of, uh, of thing, that type of thing. It, 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 what, it's not saying that you have the right to do it. It's saying let no man come along and say that you have to do it. Let no man judge you. Why? Because the law has been nailed to the cross. How many of these things are part of the law? All of them. All of them. And what are they, in, in one sense, a, a purpose for, verse 17? They're a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Do you want the substance, the body, or do you want the shadow? You want the substance. They're uh, they're a, they're a flag or, 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 a, or, or a illustration or whatever of the coming Messiah. And so don't go back to the shadows. Come on to the substance, to, to the Messiah, to Jesus. So let no man beguile you of your, of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he had not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So don't be beguiled that you might lose your reward. So is this a believer? Yeah. No, I think it's, um, I want to say 2nd John, it could be 3rd John, could be 1st John. Talks about losing rewards. Not losing salvation is a difference, but losing rewards. Don't be, don't be beguiled. Don't be deceived uh, that you would lose your rewards uh, in a voluntary humility. Hey, I'm going to be more spiritual than you if I don't eat pork, if I um, keep the Sabbath, if I do all of this stuff. 
worshiping of angels. Worshiping, boy, is that a big thing in our time and age. Um, so, intruding into those things which you've vainly pushed up, pushed, puffed up by his fleshly mind. So don't be beguiled. And not, hold, uh, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are you not subject, are you subject to ordinances? So uh, look to Jesus. Uh, touch not, taste not, handle not. That's the ordinances of the world, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting the body, not in any honor and satis to the satisfying of the flesh. So it, outwardly, it seems to be a, a pious thing. You can act like it's the most uh, humble thing in the, uh, to do and uh, what you're doing, uh, but there's no honor before God in doing it. All of that, he's saying the law has been done away with, nailed to the cross. That was the problems of, the, of some of the Hebrews, and they were falling back to it. Now, strange, you know, uh, be not carried about with, with divers, different and strange doctrines. Strange has the meaning of new or different from that what, what has been taught that is biblical. Kenneth Wiest, uh, on his commentary on Hebrews, said this. Be not carried about is the translation of may uh, paraphero. The present tense indicating that this was a present and an act of danger. It is stop being carried away. Divers and strange doctrines refer to the various phases of one radical error. The denial of the Messiahship of Jesus and of his messianic sacrifice is superseding Judaism. So that's the root problem in the context of uh, Hebrews. The Greek text has stopped being carried away. Not only was the danger present, but some were being carried away. Now again, we can extrapolate this to uh, any time in church history uh, and any error or any false teaching that might lead you astray. Uh, and today, certainly, uh, there is much false teaching, perhaps as much as any time in the in the history of the church. Um, so we need to be aware of it. Now, I want to mention one example. Um, it, it's, it's, it's new terminology with an old error, at least relatively old. That is social justice Christianity. <clears throat> there was an article um, how the social gospel is becoming the dominant theology in evangelicalism. Uh, it was initially published in March of 2017. It was updated in April of 2018. And in part of it, it said this. There is a dangerous trend that is sweeping throughout churches, especially in America. The church has largely redefined the gospel from its most basic tenets to something uh, that tends to have a mass appeal to outsiders, the social gospel. The social gospel comes in many different flavors 
and is advanced by those of various theological traditions, but appears to be the most prevalent in the cabal of New Calvinism. However, they are certainly not the only ones. The Gospel Coalition, which should be rightly renamed the Social Gospel Coalition, is by far the most prominent outlet for the advancement of social justice in the church. Turn your page over. The following comes from BereanResearch.org about social justice, and they said this in the box. Do not be fooled by professing Christians who prefer, prefer either progressive Christian or social justice Christian to evangelical. And by the way, the, the term evangelical today has lost almost all of its meaning, unfortunately, because many of these, those who claim to be evangelical have adopted things like social justice and progressive Christian and and have just left the historical meaning of evangelical. Uh, so it's really become a very watered-down term. Nevertheless, let me read on. It, not, it matters not what trendy terms people use to describe themselves. A progressive by any other name is still a liberal. Think of it in the political realm. So it should not come as a surprise to learn that some uh, progressive PCs are not politically correct, by the way, in this guy is progressive Christians, uh, are avowed Marxists. Marxism is the theory of the economics and politics of atheists, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. The holds that, quote, actions in human institutions are economically determined, that the class struggle is the basic agency of historical change, and that capitalism will, be ultimately, uh, will ultimately be superseded by communism. Clearly, this theory is unbiblical. You can see the fight in our country today over this very thing uh, in the secular world, in the political world. Um, socialism, communism, uh, progressivism is basically Marxism. And I'm not here to uh, argue about or discuss politics, but that's just the plain fact. Well, this article lists some of the leaders, in no particular order, in the area of progressive Christianity. Now, you, you'll, you, you'll, you know, they got politicians in here. They've got Barack Obama. Wow, I didn't know he was a Christian. Well, he claimed to be a Christian. Um, but he's certainly a very progressive one. Uh, they also have down here somewhere uh, Hillary Clinton, I remember reading. Um, yeah, in the second line of the last name, Hillary Clinton. Right next to Bono. Good place to be, I guess, right? But they've got others that you will recognize in the evangelical world. Uh, and this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, Rick Warren. Uh, John Dominic Croson. Uh, uh, does, it, does he teach at Duke, I think, or did, or whatever? He was big, he was big in, the, um, in the Jesus Seminar, that type of thing. Anyway, Rob Bell, Merging Church. Um, Bart Ehrman, who teaches at Duke Divinity, if he's still there. Pardon? Is it UNC? At UNC. Um, Bill Hybels, Lynn Hybels, uh, Timothy Keller, Brian McLaren. Um, Russell Moore, Beth Moore, and I don't think they're related, 
Um, uh, there's other, you know, Carrie Underwood, Jim Wallace, Mark Deaver, Albert Moeller. Uh, and these are the ones that this article lists. And the note in the article, while some of the above are misguided, others, like Jim Wallace, I, didn't, I guess I didn't read Jim Wallace, who claims to be a Christian, are outright Marxists. Uh, Jim Wallace was the one of, if not the, spiritual advisor to Barack Obama when he was in office. Maybe still is. I don't know. Others could be added to the list. J.D. Greer of the Summit Church in Durham, presently the president of the Southern Baptist Convention since June of last year, uh, could be added to the list as well as others. Essentially, social justice Christianity, and there's all kinds of tentacles that go out from this uh, and what they believe. Um, <coughs> we don't need to get into that. But social justice Christianity is liberalism repackaged. Essentially what it is is a replay of the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the late 19th and early 20th century. Now, nobody here was alive at that time, I don't, I presume, right? Bob? No. So. Your first, your first wife or, or my, but anyway, okay. Let, let me read it. This comes from Biblia.work and, and the dictionary. And what, what it, what, are you familiar at all with the fundamentalist, modernist controversy of the end of the 1800s, early 1900s? No. Uh, some are to some degree. Here's, here's, here's a, I tried to find a, as brief a definition as possible. The fundamentalist, modernist controversy was an extended conflict in the Protestant churches and American society at large between religious liberals who sought to preserve Christianity by accommodating the traditional faith to modern culture and, and militant, that's, this is the fun, fun, fundamentalist, militant theological conservatives. Now, I wouldn't have used the word militant, but I'm just reading their definition. Determined to save evangelical Christianity an American civilization from the advances of modernism and Darwinianism. Liberal, so, so modernism was liberal religious Christians, if you want to use that term, who wanted to, ad to adapt Christianity to the cultural mores of that day. Evolution, women's rights, racism, that type of thing. Today, the social justice movement is the exact same thing. No different. It's got its roots in Marxism, but it also has its roots back in the, um, uh, the, the modernistic uh, movement back in the late 18th century, early 19th century. That probably has done more than anything to destroy American Christianity, or as much as anything. Uh, I remember, um, I think it's Woodrow Kroll, who used to be the, uh, the director of Back to the Bible Ministries, and he wrote a, a book on, um, it was on the decline of missions or something. Uh, I forget the exact name of it. But he, he, comment, he made a mention in that book that 
towards the end of the 19th century, 1816s, 1870s, 1880s, fully two-thirds of the inhabitants of this country were professing born-again believers. Today, wow, um, 10%, maybe, maybe, when you've got 20 to 30% of our, of our citizenry that are outright atheistic or agnostics, no God, why the big change? Well, modernism had a large part in that. And, and, and the fundamentalists tried to stop it J. Grisham Mason and uh, a lot of these people in the early 19th century just fought it. Um, didn't win. You know, it's a whole long history. There have been books written about this, that type of thing. This is an error. This is strange doctrine. This is false teaching. And it's all around us today. And it's growing, uh, as that earlier article said. Um, and it's permeating the church. Uh, it, 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 it almost seems like um, the church picks up the, um, I'm not sure what word to use. I want to say error, but I'm not sure if that's the right word. The, 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 the church picks up the trend of general society 20 years after they've started it. You know, how long have been, you know, reparations is coming to a head. I don't think anything's going to happen with it. But they're holding meetings in Congress now, and uh, all you've been, if you follow that type of news. How many years have they been talking about reparations for the black people who were, you know, 150 years ago slaves? So, you know, well, if that goes through, I'm going after the Egyptians, beloved. Um, <laughs> you know. Hey, they put my people under, you know, I had to, you know, you know, and we were there for 400 years. You know, the black people have nothing on me. Um, you know, they were under slavery here for what? Um, you know, 100 years? I got 400 years of grievances. So, yeah, move to Egypt. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, and now the church is picking that up in the social justice movement. And it's very tragic. It's very sad. Um, so be aware of it, because you're going to find well-known Christians um, that are championing this now. Some of them are on this list, unfortunately. This is just one type of error. You've got the emergent church. You've got uh, the church growth movement. You've got the health wealth gospel. You've got all kinds of strange doctrines and strange teaching uh, that's going on. So uh, what the command is, uh, initially, the negative is don't be carried about with different and false erroneous teachings. The second thing is positive. The second is be established. Let your heart be established with grace. And that is so important. So I want, I want to consider grace. Uh, it's on, on, the, on your second page. God wants us to be established in grace, not ritual observance. And that's the context. Meets, Mosaic law, that type of thing. So what is grace? Bayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament has 
these, they have a number of definitions of grace. The Greek word charis, charismatic grace, uh, charis, which is most often translated as grace in the New Testament. Here, here's the definitions that they give, that this lexicon gives to grace. To grant forgiveness, to pardon, goodwill, loving, kindness, favor. The idea of kindness which bestows upon one what he has not deserved. Oftentimes that's what, what we understand grace to be, right? We get something that we don't deserve. You know, by grace are you saved. We didn't deserve salvation. God so loved the world. By grace are you saved. The merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues. Sustaining and aiding the efforts of men, of the men who labor for the cause of Christ. The salvation offered to Christians is called charis in Greek, a gift of divine grace, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 13. The aggregate of the extremely diverse powers and gifts granted to Christians. So the sum of them, the total of them, uh, the, uh, the diverse powers and gifts that God has given to Christians. The gift of knowledge and utterance conferred upon Christians. So those are the definitions that Thayer's lexicon uh, gives to this word that's translated grace. There's probably no better chapter in the Bible than 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that helps us understand what grace is. So I want us to consider 2 Corinthians chapter 8. First, some background on this chapter. Six months had intervened between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians, uh, and I mention it here, is filled with rebuke and corrections. Every chapter, there were party factions. Wisdom of men was elevated. There were sexual sins in the congregation. There was legal litigation problems, harlotry not considered wrong, wrong understanding about marriage and celibacy, attendance at idol feasts, abuse of the Lord's Supper, misuse of spiritual gifts, lack of love, denial of the bodily resurrection. Corinth was, a, was as carnal a church as you will find. And every chapter Paul is writing to the Corinthians correcting what had happened. Now, just for um, remembrance sake, how did Paul know what was happening at Corinth? Remember? The house of Chloe, or Chloe, C-H-L-O-E, had written a letter to Paul. And he, in chapter 1, you read this. And he's responding they're saying, Paul, we got all these things happening here. What do we do? And they, they, and they list all the problems that are going on in Corinth. And Paul writes a letter back dealing with the problems. 
That's why when you come to chapter 12 in the gifts chapter, which goes through 14, Paul, it starts out, Paul writes, now concerning being spiritual, or as the King James has anyway, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant as dumb Gentiles that are carried away. He now says, now I want you to be understanding about being spiritual. I don't want you to be ignorant. And he goes on and he deals with the misuse of gifts and corrects them. But the whole book is like that. Well, he writes to them. Six months later, he writes back to the Corinthian church. Turn, your, turn the page uh, uh, over. Titus had went to Corinth. This is in the interim. Titus had went to Corinth, reports back to Paul, and Paul rejoices that they had received his first letter well. That's recorded in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. Initially, Paul had regretted sending such a strong letter of rebuke. But he was thankful he sent it when he heard of the positive response of the Corinthians to the letter. as verses 8 through 13 of 2 Corinthians 7. So Titus reports back and says, hey, they, they didn't take it negatively at all. I'm sure some did. But overwhelmingly, they received it well, and Paul was very encouraged he was concerned that he was way too strong. But then he was thankful that he had written such a strong letter because they took it well and responded well to it. Now, the Jewish Christians of Judea had suffered as a result of the famine at that time, as rain, during the reign of Claudius from 41 to 54 AD. That's in Acts 11, 27 through 30. The largely Gentile church at Antioch responded quickly by sending relief by the hand of Barnabas and Paul to the Jewish believers, primarily the Jewish believers uh, in Judea who were suffering as a result of the famine. That's Acts chapter 11, also 27 through 30. Now, the admonition that we find in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians was a follow-up on what had already been communicated. In 1 Corinthians 16, it talked about giving and encouraged them in their giving because they weren't doing it properly. So this is a follow-up, an admonition and a follow-up in the giving. Now, one of the necessities of this giving, most likely, was to show the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. Galatians 3.28 talks about neither Jew or Gentile in Christ. We're all equal. But in the first century, there was a, there was a discord. There was a, a division. Um, many of the Jewish believers initially didn't think Gentiles could be part of the church. Remember, I, I always remember. We, we, have, we, we played here years ago. There was a... Um, there was a... Uh, uh, there was a radio, how am I, what am I trying to say? Remember, remember uh, on the radio programs back in the 50s, and 
you'd sit around the radio and you listen to was it Dragnet and Friday and you know and you have this drama that goes on. And today, pardon? Amos and Andy. Uh, today you have um, uh, Unshackled, that type of thing. Well, one of the Jewish missions, a number of years ago, hired a bunch of actors and actresses, and they, they, they just, it, it's so, we, we listen, we've listened to it be here. It must have been four or five years. How many, and it was called, um, um, pardon? No, 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 we did that skit. No, The Jewish Odyssey. Any, who was here when you listened to that? Anybody? You remember that? Oh, we'll have to do that again. You, you, maybe you weren't here. It is so funny, but it's so biblical. Um, and it teaches you the Bible from, from um, Abraham leaving, uh, or Abram leaving Ur of the Chaldees and comes into the, uh, to the New Testament. And when you come into that, and you've got these voices that, that, that playing the parts when you come into the New Testament, and, and you, you've got uh, Peter uh, and the gospel going to the Gentiles, and, and, and ultimately, you know, the Jewish, there's a bunch of Jewish believers praying in the house, there's a knock on the door, and, uh, and, I, and I'm not good at voices. But you've got this Irish brogue. Hi there, I'm Sean O'Brien, and I'm part of the church. The door slammed. And this Jewish man, this obviously Jewish, he goes, Oi, there goes the church. <laughs> anyway, so it's just a funny way of communicating truth. We'll have to play it. It's about half an hour long. It's really, you have to know a little bit of Jewish humor. Uh, but it, it's really cute, really. Uh, and, and it takes you from Abraham into, takes you through the prophets. And, and, and it takes you Isaiah. Um, Oh man, you know, and and this. Oh, I won't tell you. I could go on, but anyway, it's really cute. Remember that, Dan? Did you hear it? No, I wasn't here. Ay ay ay. <laughs> Even Dan hasn't heard it. Okay, we'll have to do it. Maybe we'll do it in two weeks. Uh, is two weeks also our um, cookout? Okay, we'll also play that, and we'll have a Bible study. We'll be here until midnight. Um, <laughs> So, you know, but you'll enjoy it. It's very cute. It, it's, it's, anyway, okay. Um, why, why, why was I getting into that? Oh, the, the, there was this division in the first century. Um, and we've almost come 180 degrees in this century where there's still a division. Gentiles don't think you can be, saved, be Jewish. If you, that if you get saved, you're, still, you're no longer Jewish. Anyway. So one of the reasons for this giving to help the Jewish believers was very possibly that showing there's unity in the church. There should be. Now, the churches of Macedonia he's speaking of would have included Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. The desire is that grace be manifest in their lives. Now, grace, karas, it's used seven times in this chapter, chapter 8. Verses 1, 4, 6, 7, 9, 16, and 19. Now, in, in verse 4, it's translated gift. It's the word charis. In verse 16, um, it's translated thanks. But it's the Greek word charis. 
Others, other times it's always translated grace, but it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Greek word karas, what we normally translate grace, but once it's translated uh, here in verse 4 as gift, and in verse 16 it's translated as thanks. So if you have seven times uh, this one word is used uh, in this chapter, what do you think the main theme of chapter 8 is? Very good. <laughs> Excellent. So you should have got that. You, you, you know. But anyway, okay. So grace. Um, now, G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way about Karis. Now, the grace of God is, first of all, all that in God which is of health and beauty and glory and strength. It is the desire of God to impart it to others until finally grace had its glorious manifestation in his son and his cross the activity that provides for others these things of glory and beauty. So grace is God, first of all. Uh, the grace of God is, first of all, and all that in God which is of health and beauty and glory and strength. God wants, that's what grace is. God wants that in our life. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9, we're going to look at. We're not going to go all the way down through the end of the chapter. And I want, to, I want to end at verse 9 because verse 9 is the foundation, the key to grace. If you want grace to be operative in your life, it's, it's because of verse 9 is a reality in your life. What is verse 9 says? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye, through his poverty, might be rich. That should be engraved upon our heart, in our mind, in our thoughts, because that is the foundation of grace. For you know, he's talking to believers, and every single one of us should know this, should realize this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is that grace? He was rich. He had the glories of heaven. He's the eternal God. Yet for your sakes he became poor. He left the glories of heaven. He left the majesty of fellowship there. Humbled himself. Became poor. Became one of his creations and walked among us, why? That us, ye, believer, that you through his poverty might get the riches of eternity, the riches of glory, the riches of Christ. That is the foundation for grace. And we need to always, and it's going to underline everything. There are, there are three challenges here on grace that we're going to look at. Uh, number one, which is in bold there, is that the grace of God allows us to live above our circumstances. But before we look at that, the parenthetical thought, which is verse 9, is the basis for grace and for the Christian life. Everything flows out of this basic truth. The creator became a man, walked among his creation, ultimately 
to die for our sins. You know, if, there, if, there's, if, you, if there's any verse in the Bible that perhaps we should memorize, maybe it's this one. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for Mark's sake, for Alan's sake, for April's sake, for Cheryl, Deborah, put your name in here. Yet for your sake, he became poor, that Mark, through Jesus' poverty, might be rich. Internalize it, memorize it. It is a parenthetical thought in this entire chapter, and it's really not parenthetical because it is foundational to what he is saying. So in the first two verses, grace of God allows us to live above our circumstances. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, that's the King James, and uh, we do you to wit. <laughs> so, okay, I put the New King James down so you can understand what it's saying. However, moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. I'm communicating to you, I want you to know the grace of God that the churches of Macedonia had from God. Verse 2. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now, verse 1 made known to you the grace of God. The communication here is I want to show you the examples of this church, these believers, and the grace of God that undergirded their walk, undergirded their life. And I want you to understand that, that these Christians were having a great trial of affliction. They had... Deep poverty. Not just poverty. You know, you know, poverty in the United States today is when you're on food stamps and get a subsidy so you can have an air-conditioned apartment and TV and a cell phone with a car that you can drive around. That's poverty in our country by and large. Now, I know there's, a, you know, there's some worse than that. This is extreme poverty. This is destitute. This is, they don't have hardly two, uh, two nickels to rub together. They were being afflicted for their faith. They were in extreme poverty. But in that great trial of affliction, they had, and their extreme po poverty, they had two things. They had an abundance of joy, and they had liberality. Now, the circumstances. Great trial affliction, deep poverty. I'm not going to read all these verses. There's not that many verses on uh, affliction, 1 Thessalonians, the abundance of joy. But the abundance of joy that they had and the liberality that they had, even though they were going through these great trials and, and, and the deep poverty, why? Verse 9. What is verse 9? 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. They internalized this. They knew the grace of God in Christ, that what Christ had done for them, he left all the riches of heaven and became poor, that they, who had nothing, even spiritually, might be made rich in Christ. And when they internalized that, and that became the basis of their life, it didn't matter their circumstances. And they had terrible... I, I, would, I would suggest that their circumstances, none of us today in this room, are in this condition. Their joy was contagious. Their liberality was a testimony to God's grace. Their abundance of joy. Joy comes from the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins and knowing what the Lord has done for us. Now, liberality in the Greek here means literally single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. And it comes from the knowledge that God has given uh, us his infinite uh, generosity in Sunday, sending his son to redeem us. In other words, uh, their single-mindedness of thought was they're going to help others. God was so willing to give up everything, Jesus was, that I might become rich. He became poor for my sake, who was in poverty, that through his poverty I might get the riches that he would give me. And, and that undergirded their entire thinking and made them single-minded in their life. I want to help others. Now, the main way, reason, or the main way we help others is um, sharing the gospel, but in the context here, they were sending help to Judea for the poor Christians there. They were, they were giving money. They may have had a dollar in their pocket, and they gave that dollar to help because they had a single-minded purpose based on that. The grace of God allows us to live above our circumstances. Turn the page over. The grace of giving allows us to give generously. And this is their testimony to us. Paul writes and says this, For to their power I bear record. Yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. I, I, I bear testimony, record, that according to their power, their ability, they gave but they gave beyond their ability. Maybe they gave the only chicken that they had that could lay eggs. Maybe they gave the only goat that they have that could produce milk, trusting that God would meet their needs. Because if I know the grace of God, that he who was rich became poor, that I who, who am poor in poverty could be rich, and that motivated them to go beyond what they perhaps should have done. The liberality, their single-mindedness of giving. Verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They begged us to take their money. They prayed that we would take the very little that they had. 
praying us with much interest that we would receive the gift. Paul and Barnabas didn't want to take their money. They, they knew how they, Paul they were, poor they were. And Paul was saying, they begged us, don't steal this joy. Don't steal this opportunity. We don't have a lot, but what we have, we want to give. Because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor. That we who were, became, who were poor might become rich in him. Please don't turn us down. I can't remember the last time somebody came here and begged me to take a gift. Or any ministry probably could say the same thing. Verse 5. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Okay, we took their money. But it's not as, as we hoped it would be. There was a priority in their giving. First, they gave of their own selves to the Lord. Secondly, they gave themselves unto us. And that includes everything that they had. So verse 3, they gave not only according to their ability, but beyond. Verse 4, they begged that their gift would be received because it was seen as having a part uh, or fellowship in ministering to the saints. And verse 5, they, the first thing they did that made this possible is they gave of themselves to God. Think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What God wants first in our life is not our money. He wants us. And the, the saints of Macedonia, out of Thessalonica, out of Philippi, and such, they understood this. So they didn't do it as Paul figured they would. They first gave themselves to God, and then to the people they wanted to serve, and they could serve them, and the grace was evident in their life because they understood the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, became poor. That we, who are poor, might become rich. And if you internalize that verse, you can live like the Macedonians, and you will have an abundance of joy and a liberality in your life, a giving in your life that will blow your mind. ministering to primarily believers. For God is unrighteous, not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Hebrews 6.10. And then finally, in verses 6 through 8, you have the grace of maturity. That allows us to follow through on our commitments. Verse 6, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so we had also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, in all diligence, and your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, 
but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Verse 6, the Corinthians had made a commitment to help financially, 2 Corinthians 9, the next chapter, 1 through 5. Here they're being encouraged to follow through on all commitment. Maturity involves following through on your commitment. Unless you're providentially hindered in some way, when you make a commitment, you should follow through. You don't need to, you know, a Christian really shouldn't need to have to, we shouldn't have to sign a contract. I know we live in a world, a whole different world. But, you know, our word should be our honor. You know, remember back supposedly in our country years ago when your word was as good as your signature? And, uh, you know, a handshake or whatever? Yeah, man's word is his bond. Well, it should be for believers. That's what it said. That's maturity. When you commit to something, you follow through. Again, unless you're providentially hindered, and, and things happen at times that prevent you from doing it, and that's why uh, it's in, in James, uh, don't say tomorrow I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that. Say, Lord willing, I will do that. And it's always good to preface something, Lord willing. Now, when you're with an unsaved person, you'll think you're crazy. So be careful there. Uh, Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow for lunch. What do you mean, Lord willing? I thought we were planning a meet. Well, Lord willing. Um, you know. So, but, uh, you know, that's really, you know, try it with an unbeliever next time. You know. Boss, Lord willing, I'll be in tomorrow. Well, if the Lord's not willing, you won't be working here anymore. Uh, so, you know. Well, your intention is to be there, but you don't know what's going to happen between, uh, you know, 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., excuse me, 9 a.m., whatever time. You don't know what's going to the Lord willing. So, yeah, well, yeah, I know. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the uh, secular version of Lord willing, um, if the creek don't rise, so. You know, so unless we're providentially hindered some way, we should, we should follow through on our commitments. Verse 7, the Corinthians excelled in everything else. In other words, make sure you excel in this. Follow through in what you commit to. Finish well. And verse 8, maturity is reflected in deeds, not just words. Verse 8 again, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. 1 John puts it this way, chapter 3. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, by the way, right there. Said in other words. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother of need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Don't just talk about it. Do it. What this chapter is saying, what this verse is saying, don't let false teaching lead you astray. Make sure your life 
is founded, grounded, established in grace. Be convinced in your heart that the grace of Jesus Christ, he who was rich, became poor, that we who were in poverty, poor, might have the riches of Jesus Christ through what he has done. That's through his death, burial, and resurrection. That should be internalized in our heart, in our mind, and that will drive us, and God will give us the grace with that basic understanding in our life to have an abundance of joy and a liberality in our lifestyle of giving and ministering to people. Don't be led astray. Be established in grace. Very practical. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, we are grateful and, and, and thankful that uh, we do have the word of God. Help us to rightly divide it. And Lord, help each one of us to be established in grace. Lord, to understand grace. And it's founded in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And if we internalize that, and that becomes our uh, motivation in life, that becomes our foundation in life, we can manifest in any circumstance abundant joy and a liberality no matter the riches we might or might not have. So Lord, help us for Jesus' sake. Bless our fellowship, bless the food, and we'll thank you in his name. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information Go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.